0: Welcome to Secrets True Crime, the Eric Cates and Gypsy story. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the story of Eric Cates, his beloved dog Gypsy, and the Town of Empire, located in Walker County, Alabama. Listener discretion is advised. The subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. It is not suitable for younger listeners. On March 21st, 2015, 32-year-old Eric Cates and his faithful four-legged companion Gypsy were found burned in the cab of Eric's white S-10 pickup truck behind the old Empire School in the tiny little Walker County town of Empire, Alabama. On Friday, October 13, 2023, after eight and a half long Years. Arrests have finally been made in the horrific murder of Eric Cates and his loyal and faithful dog Gypsy. Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall released the following statement Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall today announced the indictments of Joshua Franklin Hill, 33, of Walker County and Sirena Cheyenne Stiles, 28, of Walker County for the 2015 death of Eric Cates. Cates and his dog Gypsy were found deceased in the Empire community on March 21, 2015. Hill and Stiles were each indicted on one count of murder. The indictments were served and defendants arrested On Friday, October 13th, Stiles was arrested by the Summerton Police Department and Hill was arrested by the U.S. Marshal Fugitive Task Force. On October 5th, 2023, Attorney General Marshall's Special Prosecution and Criminal Trials Divisions in partnership with the Summerton Police Department and former agents, of the Walker County Sheriff's Office, presented evidence to a Walker County Grand Jury, which resulted in Hill's indictment on one count of murder and Stiles' indictment on one count of murder. The Attorney General's Office investigated the case at the request of the Walker County Sheriff's Office. If convicted of murder, a Class A felony, both Hill and and Stiles would face a range of punishment from not less than 10 years to not more than 99 years or life imprisonment. Due to the possibility of additional suspects, no other information about the investigation or the defendant's alleged crimes can be released at this time. Josh and Cheyenne's grand jury indictments were identical. They stated that they, or an accomplice, did intentionally cause the death of Eric Cates by striking or hitting him with a blunt instrument, and or setting and maintaining a fire which caused his death. The indictments also listed the witnesses who testified before the grand jury, and the names are the same on both. Joseph Herman, who's a special agent with the Alabama Attorney General's Office. T.J. Burnett is the police chief for the city of Summerton. For those of you who aren't familiar with Walker County, Summerton is a city on the east side of the county, not far from Empire. The next witness listed is former Walker County lead investigator and now Alabama Deputy State Fire marshal Chuck Tidwell. The last witness listed is Jessica Veith. If you recall, Jessica was Randy Hicks' common law wife, and you heard from her in earlier episodes of the podcast. There simply are not adequate words to express our profound gratitude and heartfelt appreciation for the countless individuals who have unwaveringly labored to ensure that those accountable face justice. We extend our deepest thanks to Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall, Special Agent Joseph Herman, and the dedicated legal professionals and the entire supporting team we would also like to recognize the exceptional efforts of Summerton Police Chief T.J. Burnett and his devoted department. It is important to emphasize that these accomplishments have been achieved in spite of the challenges faced with the Walker County Sheriff's Office, both past and present. It is crystal clear that justice for Eric and Gypsy would have remained beyond reach if it weren't for the unwavering commitment and tenacity of a multitude of individuals, many of whom shall remain unnamed. Ultimately, there is no doubt in my mind that this day has only come because of the relentless determination of Eric's mother, Toby one of the first things Toby told us was that the deaths of her son and Gypsy would not be in vain. There is no limit to the power of a parent's love. While Eric's father was equally committed and dedicated to uncovering the truth and who was responsible, unfortunately, he died just 16 months After Eric, and he was denied the opportunity to see justice for his son and Gypsy, but Toby continued to pursue justice. She was bullied and abused by those who were supposed to be there to help her, including the time, or is it times, that the district attorney wanted her arrested. The intimidation she faced would have dropped many to their knees. But she never gave up. While there are so many people who played significant roles in the investigation that led to the recent arrest, none of it would have ever happened but for a mother who wouldn't give up.
1: We prayed a long time for justice in Eric and Gypsy's case. And at times, we had almost given up. So the excitement, the feelings that we had when Chris and I were told that a rest were going to be made was answered to our prayers and all the others that had been praying and hoping for us. It was like a heavy weight had been taken off of our shoulders because you have to understand these names are names that came up in the beginning. Josh Hill. Cheyenne, Luke Williams, Perry Selman. They all came up in the beginning and many more. And that was one of the things that was so frustrating in the beginning. How could all of these be involved? And yet as time went on, it proved that they were. So for eight and a half years, we've had to carry these names and these faces Hoping and praying that one day we would get justice. The Alabama Attorney General's Office has done a fantastic job, along with Chief T.J. Burnett with the Summinton Police Department. The only one that would believe in us and help us get the story out was Secret Street Crime. And here we are today with two arrests and more to come. And I can finally say that justice will soon be given to Eric and Gypsy.
0: As you all know, the legal process that has begun can be quite lengthy. We will continue to keep you all updated on any news and any and all legal proceedings throughout the process. If you recall... We used mostly aliases in this podcast. We are not going to match aliases with real names until the legal process has concluded because we do not want to do anything to interfere with the ongoing investigation and prosecutions. There is a time for everything. At this time, our one and only priority is to see that justice is served and we aren't going to do anything that could compromise that and all the hard work that has gone into bringing justice to Eric and Gypsy's loved ones. Let's discuss what we know about the two indicted individuals. 33-year-old Joshua Franklin Hill has a criminal history spanning numerous counties and jurisdictions He has multiple arrests and convictions for crimes such as drug-related, multiple burglary convictions, possession of burglars' tools, theft of property, and having a pistol in his vehicle. He currently has pending cases in Walker County for receiving stolen property in 2022 and a domestic violence charge from 2015. 28-year-old Sirena Cheyenne Stiles was Josh Hill's girlfriend at the time of Eric and Gypsy's murder. Cheyenne has a minor criminal history with a few drug related misdemeanor charges. Based on the information we obtained during our investigation, Josh and Cheyenne broke up about four months after Eric's murder, and by the end of July 2015, Josh had a new girlfriend. In August 2015, Josh Hill was arrested for domestic violence, Assault 3rd. The complaint states that he struck Cheyenne in the face during an altercation and choked her. While Alicourt does indicate the case was set for a bench trial in November 2015, it appears the trial never occurred and has never been rescheduled. It seems quite strange, but somehow the case appears to still be open over eight years later. Josh's father and four of his five siblings live in or close to Walker County, and dad and at least three of Josh's siblings also have extensive criminal histories. Josh's older brother was just sent back to prison in August According to the Alabama Department of Corrections website, he is currently serving his sentence for two theft of property first convictions that occurred in neighboring Jefferson County. The website indicates he has prior convictions for three additional theft of property first, possession of a controlled substance, receiving stolen property third, two unlawful breaking and entering a vehicle, burglary second and third, and a possession of marijuana first charge. While I haven't checked Alicourt, I'd be surprised if he didn't have additional charges pending based on the number of times I've seen him on the Jefferson County jail roster in the last year. This same brother was reportedly shot in the back in Empire in June 2023, just a stone's throw from the Empire School. While I can't say what happened, I have not heard of anyone facing any charges related to the incident. Josh's younger brother is also no stranger to law enforcement. While I do not know the status of any of these charges, In the past four years alone, he's been arrested many times on a variety of charges such as theft of property first stolen vehicle, theft of property third, criminal trespass third, receiving stolen property first, and numerous failure to appears. One time in 2021, Jefferson County was holding him in jail on six failure to appears. In 2022, Jefferson County had him in jail again on 11 failure to appears, and the system noted that seven out of the 11 were felonies. He was arrested for stealing the city of Summerton's backhoe and taking it for a seven-mile joyride that allegedly included digging random holes in the Coon Creek woods, but I don't know if he was ever indicted on those charges or not. He was also present when the U.S. Marshals arrived to arrest Josh for Eric's murder, and he was taken to the Jefferson County Jail that day for a theft of property first stolen vehicle charge from 2022. Somehow, He was able to bond out the same day. One of Josh's sisters has quite a record too. Theft of property first, auto theft and sale, public intox, possession of a controlled substance and drug paraphernalia, and numerous failures to appear. And then there's Josh's dad, Frank Hill. He is also a felon many times over, His criminal charges appear to begin in Alabama in the mid-1990s. He's been arrested for harassment. Three receiving stolen property first. Two escape seconds. Numerous probation revocations, most if not all of which must have gone nowhere. Two unlawful distribution of a controlled substance unlawful manufacturing of a controlled substance, and to theft of property first. A closer look at a couple of his cases in Alicourt reveal that a number of those charges were dismissed after he took a plea deal and completed drug court. Wow, that sounds like a really sweet deal for a multi-time felon, especially since the plea agreement stated the prosecutor would recommend a sentence of a total of 31 years to the judge as part of the plea agreement, and that didn't even account for the manufacturing meth charge that was completely dismissed. Amazing. The nature of the criminal charges among Josh and his immediate family members are pretty similar. They have various drug and vehicle and or property theft charges. Is this what some would refer to as a crime family? After Josh and Cheyenne were arrested for murder on October 13th, both were scheduled for a bond hearing on Monday, October 16th at 10 a.m. in Judge Barantine's courtroom. As you just heard, Josh has a significant criminal history, while Cheyenne does not. Josh's hearing was an Anaya's Law bond hearing. Anaya's Law is an amendment to the Constitution of Alabama that was just passed in November, 2022. In 2019, 19-year-old college student Anaya Blanchard was abducted from a convenience store and murdered her body was found a month later in a rural county. The man who was charged with kidnapping and murder had been released from jail on bond earlier that same year on charges of kidnapping, robbery, and attempted murder in another incident. Alabama lawmakers and Anaya's parents rallied together to make a change that would save lives and the new amendment was named in Anaya's honor. Section 16 of the Alabama Constitution said people charged with a crime, except for capital offenses, had a right to bail, and that bail could not be excessive. Anaya's law added a list of serious crimes other than capital offenses for which a defendant could be held without bail before trial. It amended the Constitution to allow murder, kidnapping in the first degree, rape in the first degree, sodomy in the first degree, sexual torture, domestic violence in the first degree, human trafficking in the first degree, burglary in the first degree, arson in the first degree, robbery in the first degree, terrorism, and aggravated abuse of a child under age six as charges for which a defendant could be held without bail. Anaya's law unanimously passed both the Alabama House and Senate, and then it was voted on by the citizens. The amendment passed with overwhelming support. More than 80% of Alabama voters. The prosecution intended to ask the judge to hold Josh without bond. In Alabama, no audio or video recording or photographs are allowed inside courtrooms except in rare exceptions. I was well aware of the rules and went prepared with a pen notebook When I arrived at the hearing, the courtroom was pretty full, and Josh was already seated. He wasn't the only inmate who had court that day, and he was seated on a bench with a group of inmates to the judge's left. All of the inmates, regardless of gender, were wearing orange jail pants. And a white jail shirt. I sat with Eric and Gypsy's family on the opposite side of the courtroom. Josh appeared agitated at times, bouncing his knee. Cheyenne arrived later and she was wearing a tan jail jumpsuit. This is when many realized that while she was listed on the Walker County Jail inmate roster, Cheyenne was being housed at another jail outside of the county. Josh Hill had two public defenders there on his behalf, Belinda Weldon and Samuel Sullivan. Weldon immediately asked the judge if she could approach the bench once court was in session. I couldn't hear everything that was being said, but I did hear Weldon tell the judge that the podcast lady was here and she wanted me and the media removed from the courtroom. While the news media was mentioned, she harped quite a bit about me and the podcast. Walker County District Attorney Bill Adair argued that there was nothing that would prevent me and the media from being present, as long as we were not photographing, recording, or videoing inside the courtroom, which we weren't. Weldon continued to complain that the podcast is social media, and one of the AG attorneys also added some comments in defense of our presence. In the end, we were allowed to stay as there was no legal reason to remove us or the media from the courtroom. I made a mental note to myself that it's probably time for me to put an attorney on retainer, in case the defense, or anyone else for that matter, decides to continue to try to bar us from the courtroom. There's only one reason they'd want to do that, and that is they don't want you, the public, to know what's happening there. And we all already know there's never anything good happening when the government tries to conceal things from the public. Judge Barentine called Josh to come stand in front of her, She read him his rights and asked if he understood them. He said no, that he didn't understand. She asked what he meant, and he blurted out that the whole system was being rushed, and he said he didn't understand why he was in jail and why he wasn't having a preliminary hearing. She explained that because of the grand jury indictment, that there would be no preliminary hearing. Judge Barentine patiently and slowly read each right to Josh again, one by one, asking after each if he understood, and he said he did. Considering how many times Josh had been arrested and read his rights, you'd have thought he would have known them by heart. Judge Barentine announced to the courtroom that due to the nature of the charges against him, there would be a full hearing The prosecution was handled by State of Alabama Assistant Attorney General Damon Lewis, State of Alabama Assistant Attorney General Vern Spears, and Walker County District Attorney Bill Adair. I'm sure many of you expect me to have something to say about that, and you're right, but it might not be what you expect. The Alabama Attorney General's Office has conducted themselves with integrity and professionalism since the day they got involved in the case. If they believe that the Walker County District Attorney should be involved as their third chair in these prosecutions, I accept their decision. Next, the Assistant Attorneys General asked the judge to allow them to keep several witnesses confidential for the time being, for their safety, because some witnesses had been threatened The defense argued that Josh had a right to confront his accusers, and he does, but not necessarily in a bond hearing. Judge Barentine warned the prosecutors to tread lightly with this issue, and she asked them if these were legitimate threats and not just some social media threats. They confirmed to her that the threats were legitimate, and she ruled that the witnesses could remain confidential for the bond hearing. The state then called their first witness, Special Agent Joseph Herman, with the Alabama Attorney General's Office. If you recall, the Attorney General's Office took Eric's case in February 2020. Special Agent Herman testified that he was assigned to the case in January 2023, after the prior investigator retired. He explained that he spent the first month or so studying the case file. Then he heard about an arson class that was being taught by Dr. Elaine Pope. Dr. Pope is a forensic anthropologist and is an expert on the effects of fire on the human body. If you are interested in more details about her and what she does, check out her website at burnedbone.com. I have no doubt you will be quite impressed with her resume. Special Agent Herman signed up for her class, and he testified that so much of what she was teaching seemed to apply to Eric Cates, so he approached her during a break to see if she consulted on cases. Shortly after that class, the Alabama Attorney General's Office, contracted with Pope to review the case. Special Agent Herman testified that he provided Pope with the crime scene photos taken by Walker County Sheriff's Office investigator Tim Thomas. The photos showed Eric's undisturbed remains in his truck as they were found that day. Special Agent Herman testified that Pope called him and asked him to look at a particular photo in the set of photos he provided her. This photo showed Eric's skull, and she identified a fracture in his skull that was not caused by the fire. She was certain it was a pre-fire injury." Special Agent Herman provided her with a copy of Eric's autopsy that was performed by Dr. Green at the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences. Dr. Green's autopsy noted a hematoma on Eric's brain in the same area that Pope noted the pre-fire skull fracture. Only four people knew this information, Special Agent Herman Chief T.J. Burnett and the two attorneys from the Alabama Attorney General's office. Special Agent Herman explained that later a witness told them that there was a fight at Perry Selman's house and Josh Hill hit Eric in the head with an object. They said as soon as he hit Eric, Eric fell straight to the ground. A witness reported that Josh said, I thought I killed him right then. Special Agent Herman also testified that various people gave statements claiming that they were at Perry's on that day, March 20, 2015. He said that Cheyenne Stiles told them that Josh Hill instructed her to drive Eric behind the Empire School in Eric's truck. She described Eric as incapacitated, but still alive. She told investigators that Eric was wheezing and breathing heavily during the drive to the Empire School. She also said that Josh followed her in his own truck and another man was with him. Special Agent Herman did name this man in open court we fully believe that many arrests are still to come, and we will refrain from naming him until after charges have been filed. Special Agent Herman then described a statement given to investigators by another witness. This unnamed witness told them that there was an argument between Josh and Cheyenne, and Josh began beating her as Eric pulled up to Perry Selman's house, Eric jumped from his truck and got Josh off Cheyenne, who was on the ground. As soon as Eric did this, two other men immediately jumped on Eric with Josh. Special Agent Herman stated that Cheyenne told them she went into Perry's house while all this was happening She said that when Josh came inside a little later, she asked what happened and Josh told her, we just killed him. Cheyenne told them that Josh said if she ever said anything about what happened, he would kill her too. She also told investigators that once they got behind the Empire School, Josh removed a cross necklace from Eric's truck he gave the necklace to Cheyenne's mother the very next day. Her mom kept it for quite some time, but she eventually gave the necklace to Chief Burnett with the Summerton Police Department. As Special Agent Herman was about to begin testifying to the details of a statement provided by another confidential witness, the defense again objected to the witness not being named. After some back and forth between attorneys, the judge ruled that the safety of the witnesses was more important for the purposes of that hearing. Special Agent Herman continued his testimony. He said that another witness indicated that Josh had thrown Cheyenne to the ground and was on top of her. Eric pulled him off, and two more men immediately jumped Eric. It was three men on Eric when he was struck in the head with an object by Josh and he dropped to the ground. The witness reported seeing Cheyenne drive Eric's truck away. Special Agent Herman named the two men who jumped Eric with Josh. One is alive and well and has yet to be charged with a crime, so we will not name him quite yet. The other man he named was Randy Hicks. Under questioning, Special Agent Herman hesitated to say that Randy was murdered. He said that how he died was currently unknown, but he mentioned that Randy died within days of being released from the Walker County Jail. He also noted that after the initial altercation with Eric in which he struck him in the head, Josh Hill called his uncle Belvin Buddy Gan. Herman said that Buddy did have some involvement in the death of Eric Cates, but Buddy is dead now, too. Josh's dad, Frank, and Buddy were brothers. Buddy died unexpectedly in March of 2020. I can't say for sure how Buddy died, while it was an unattended death in neighboring Blunt County, the Blunt County Sheriff's Office made the all-too-familiar decision that no autopsy was necessary. Special Agent Herman said that after Eric and Gypsy had been set on fire, while still alive, in Eric's truck, Josh and Cheyenne went to another man's home. He did name this man. But since he too has not yet been charged with a crime, we will refrain from naming him for now. He also testified on the day Eric and Gypsy were found, Alabama Deputy State Fire Marshal Philip Freeman collected fire debris from the truck and sent it off to a lab for forensic testing to determine if an accelerant was used to start the fire. Those tests did reveal that an accelerant was used. And while the exact type of accelerant used was not able to be determined, they were able to positively state that the accelerant was medium to heavy, referring to the boiling point of the accelerant. While there's countless options of what could have been used, such as camp fuel or lighter fluid, they were able to eliminate some accelerants that could not have been used. Gasoline was eliminated completely as a possibility. Well now, you don't say. Some of you might want to hit the pause button here and take a few minutes to marinate in the implications of this information because they are great. And you can bet I'll have a lot more to say about it. In further testimony, Special Agent Herman changed topics and began to discuss the new findings from Dr. Pope again. He explained that they then contacted Dr. Green, the medical examiner at the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences, who is the one who performed Eric's autopsy after reviewing the photos from the crime scene and Dr. Pope's report, she agreed with Dr. Pope's determination. In fact, Dr. Green stated that at the time of the autopsy, she was not provided photos of the crime scene, and that if she had been, she would have come to the same conclusion because it was obvious in the crime scene photos. Unfortunately, it was less obvious to her at the time without the photos because of the condition of Eric's remains. He was so badly burned, and by the time he was removed from his truck and transported to DFS, his remains were not in the same condition or even the same position they were in at the crime scene. Special Agent Herman said that Dr. Green stated that a fracture like that would have immediately incapacitated Eric and that he would have been wheezing, would have had labored and heavy breathing. Special Agent Herman testified that Dr. Green will be revising Eric's autopsy to include Dr. Pope's findings since she agrees with Dr. Pope's report. Eric's revised autopsy will state... The cause of death is blunt force trauma, smoke inhalation, since he was still alive when he was set on fire, and the manner of death is homicide. Special Agent Herman also testified that in Josh's interviews, he claimed that he and Cheyenne were at a friend's house that night, and they were shaking a bottle of meth, He testified that investigators had interviewed this friend of Josh's twice, and both times the friend said Josh was not with him the night Eric Cates was murdered. In fact, the friend stated that Josh had told him to tell anyone who asked that he was there when in fact he wasn't there. Next, the prosecution called Chief T.J. Burnett to the stand. Chief Burnett testified that he knew Josh Hill, and he presented the court with a copy of Josh's rap sheet. He provided evidence that Josh had five felonies since the murder of Eric and Gypsy. He stated that Josh had two different possession of controlled substance charges, a burglary second charge, a burglary third charge for a dwelling, and a charge for for being in possession of burglar tools. He also noted that Josh had failed to appear in court on these various charges several times. Next, Chief Burnett discussed Josh's employment history. To sum it up, in four years, Josh had a total reported income of $333.51. Then the prosecutor asked Chief Burnett if Josh Hill was affiliated with a gang. Chief Burnett stated that they had determined that Josh was a member of the Southern Brotherhood, which he said was a gang that operates inside and outside of Alabama prisons. He pointed to a man present in the courtroom and explained that he was Investigator Galoo with the Alabama Department of Corrections. Investigator Galoo told Chief Burnett that Josh Hill told the Alabama Department of Corrections that he is a member of the Southern Brotherhood. According to the Anti-Defamation League website, the Southern Brotherhood is a large Alabama-based white supremacist prison gang. You might remember the Alabama prison inmate Casey White, who escaped the Lauderdale County jail with the help of his jailer girlfriend Vicky White. News reports stated that he too was affiliated with the Southern Brotherhood. One of Josh's public defenders, Samuel Sullivan, asked Chief Burnett if he was aware of Josh's cooperation in the Kate's murder case. Chief Burnett said he was not aware of Josh's cooperation. Josh's attorney pointed out that Josh did show up to testify at the grand jury, but Chief Burnett quickly responded for five or six minutes before he got up and walked out. Burnett continued on to say that Josh approached him and said, I'm not that person anymore. I'm different now. Next, the defense called their one and only witness, Joanne Hill. Joanne is the grandmother to Josh's older brother, Cody. She is not Josh's grandmother by blood, but from all accounts, blood or not, she has been a grandmother to Josh and all of his siblings. She testified that Josh had been living at her home for at least a year, and that she'd make sure he was in court every time he was supposed to be. The prosecution asked her if she was aware of all the failure-to-appear charges that Josh had already accumulated with other criminal cases. She stated that she did not know about the other failure-to-appears. She testified that she had no firearms or ammunition in her home. She also told the court that Josh had a job and always worked and had income. She said he just hadn't been reporting it. The prosecution asked the judge to deny bond for Josh under Anaya's law. They argued that Josh had five felonies since Eric's murder. He's in his 30s and still living with his grandmother. He's a member of a gang and he has no recorded income to speak of. The defense argued that Josh should be given a $60,000 property bond because the prosecution had no physical evidence to tie Josh to Eric's murder, and most everything they'd said in court that day was hearsay. The prosecution countered that Josh delivered the victim's necklace to Cheyenne's mother the next day and said that's about as physical as it gets. Judge Barentine told the courtroom that she felt Josh was a danger to himself and others in the community and there would be no bond. Josh's attorneys asked the judge to let Josh visit with his family before he was returned to the jail. Walker County District Attorney Bill Adair spoke up and he requested that she require security be present for the visit. Adair said that Josh is a part of the Southern Brotherhood, and he is dangerous. The judge ordered that security would be present, and that Josh could have a quick visit with his family. Cheyenne's hearing was scheduled next, but she did not have an attorney present. Since she was being held In another jail outside of the county, she had not received the forms she needed to complete to be appointed an attorney. The judge gave her the forms to complete and explained that since Josh was already being represented by the public defender's office, an outside attorney would be appointed to her to avoid a conflict of interest. Judge Barentine rescheduled Cheyenne's Hearing for Friday, October 20th. As we exited the courtroom, I realized that the prosecutors and investigators were taking Eric's family somewhere to meet with them privately. I peeled off to the side in the hallway of the courthouse and chatted with some of the local media who also attended the hearing. Since there were other inmates in the courtroom... For their hearings, Josh also remained in the courtroom as the sheriff's office would transfer all the inmates back to the jail at once. As I waited for Toby, I wandered outside to the side of the building where one of the local news station's cameraman was set up waiting for the inmates to leave the courthouse in hopes of capturing some video of Josh. I waited with him and I also videoed as the inmates were led out to the prisoner transport van. Of course, all the inmates, including Josh, quickly took notice of the news camera and me filming them. Josh promptly gave us the middle finger as he exited the building. A local reporter called out to him and asked if he had any words for the Cates family. He said, I'm innocent. Initially, Josh walked to an area where there were a number of inmates between him and the cameras, but he quickly turned around and walked back to the end of the line so that he was right in front of the cameras with no obstructions. Once he got into the transport van, he gave us all the middle finger again. We traveled back to Walker County for Cheyenne's bond hearing on October 20th, but at the last minute, the judge closed the hearing and made everything confidential. Eric's family was able to attend, but all of those present were warned that if they disclosed anything from the hearing, she would hold them in contempt of court. All we can say with certainty is that Cheyenne is no longer on the Walker County jail roster. This has led to a lot of misinformation spreading among the community. While we don't know what happened in the hearing, here is what we do know. Cheyenne was scheduled for a bond hearing. We expected Cheyenne to have a bond, and we expected to be an amount that if they wanted to get her out of jail, her family would likely be able to do so. Unlike Josh, Over the last few years, I believe Cheyenne had a job with reported income. To my knowledge, she's worked at the same place for at least a couple years. Cheyenne doesn't have numerous felony convictions. In fact, she doesn't have any felony convictions at all, so Anaya's law would not apply to her. If Cheyenne has bonded out of jail As it seems likely she has, it doesn't mean that she got a deal or has turned state's evidence. We don't know if she has or if she hasn't, but I know that her bonding out of jail would not be enough information to assume any of those things. These are new charges, and the hearings that have been held so far were bond hearings so it's still very early in what could likely be a lengthy legal process. Also, it's important to note that while in theory Cheyenne could hold valuable information for the prosecution, the investigators gave testimony that indicates they have multiple other eyewitnesses. The information revealed in the hearing was pretty significant, We are going to dive deeper into much of that information that was revealed. Before we do that, though, I want to address a couple questions that many of you have been asking us. Did Eric know Josh and Cheyenne? Our information indicates that Eric knew both of them, but he was not what you'd call friends with either of them. Eric did know Cheyenne from when she was a kid. Eric was approximately 13 years older than Cheyenne. Eric's family owned and operated a racetrack in neighboring Coleman County, and Eric often worked there when they held races. Cheyenne had a brother who raced, and who raced at the Kates family track. We've heard so many stories of Eric's love for children, and one of those stories is how Eric bought Cheyenne and her sister fireworks and helped them shoot them one weekend at the racetrack. Our information also indicates that Eric knew Josh Hill. They'd been around each other at times. They were not strangers, but they were not friends. Many of you have also connected the last name of Josh and another man who's been missing from Empire since 2018. Denton Hill. To answer this frequently asked question, yes, Josh and Denton are related. They're first cousins. Josh's dad, Frank, Denton's dad, and also Buddy Gan that we spoke about earlier, were all brothers. There are more siblings, but we don't need to get into all that. In fact, we know that Denton gave a recorded interview in Eric and Gypsy's case within a week of them being found behind the Empire School. But let me be very clear, we are not in any way suggesting that Denton took part in what happened to Eric and Gypsy. We don't know the context of Denton's interview, but we know that he lived right by the Empire School at the time. In fact, he lived in between the school and where Perry Selman lived at the end of Selman Road. Many who lived in that immediate area were interviewed. According to the testimony, Cheyenne was alone with a gravely injured Eric in his truck, and instead of driving away to get him help and save his precious life, she helped seal his tragic fate when she drove him to behind that dilapidated shit pile of a school where they burned him and Gypsy alive. Cheyenne wasn't the only one who had an opportunity to save them. We've said from very early on that we believe there were many who witnessed what happened to Eric. We still believe that. And not a single one of those people called 911. Not a single one tried to intervene and save them, and I personally hope that every single one of them is charged and sent to prison because I believe they are all guilty as hell. I know many of you who were there are listening, and I encourage you to try to right your wrongs and do the right thing now. Contact the Alabama Attorney General's office and tell the truth. While these arrests are certainly an answer to many prayers, let's not lose sight of why they are just now happening eight and a half years later. Some of this you've heard before and some you haven't. Eric's family described having major concerns and seeing red flags from the time they arrived at the old Empire School the day Eric and Gypsy were found. And those red flags continued to wave throughout the years. Walker County Chief Deputy Darren Bridges was in charge of the scene the day Eric and Gypsy were found. He never secured the scene, and many random people were allowed to walk around the school freely, including behind the school where Eric and Gypsy's burned bodies were still in his truck. Evidence was swept out of the floorboard of the truck onto the ground. When Eric's family saw it, Toby asked Chief Deputy Darren Bridges to collect it. He spoke to her in a manner that no decent human being would ever speak to a mother who just found out her son had been murdered, and he told her he had all the evidence he needed. Chief Deputy Darren Bridges told Eric's family that Eric's truck was being towed to the county garage to be stored indoors and processed for evidence. Instead, It was dropped outside where it remained all these years, and it was never processed for evidence other than the fire debris that was collected at the scene by Alabama Deputy State Fire Marshal Freeman. Chief Deputy Bridges told Eric's family multiple times that the case would never be solved. The first time he said it was within hours of Eric and Gypsy being found. Toby and Eric's dad, Wayne, went to meet with District Attorney Bill Adair to discuss their concerns. They told him that Eric's truck hadn't been processed. They explained that key individuals were not being interviewed. Adair had Eric's autopsy in front of him on his desk, but he refused to let them see it. Adair told them he wasn't going to tell the sheriff's office how to do their job because he wouldn't want them to tell him how to do his They requested that he assign one of his investigators from his office to Eric's case to assist the sheriff's office, and he refused to do that also. In the end, Adair did agree to have the seats from Eric's truck removed and sent for testing. Over the years, Toby made many requests to view Eric's autopsy, many requests to view his toxicology, and many requests to view gypsy's necropsy. She asked Walker County Coroner Joey Vick. He told her that Adair would not allow him to let her see it. For years, she was told the same thing by various people at the sheriff's office, including Nick Smith. We began working on this case in 2019, and we met with Sheriff Smith right away. He indicated that he'd hired a cold case investigator, Mike Cole and that he would be starting with the Kate's case. The sheriff did mention that the autopsy had the cause and manner of death listed as undetermined and that that would be an obstacle. He told us that former Walker County Sheriff's Office investigator Chuck Tidwell had come up with the theory that Eric had accidentally set himself on fire, but he told us that Chuck didn't work there anymore, and then he cracked a joke about Tidwell now being an Alabama state fire marshal. The things the sheriff said, the joke, and the way he laughed gave us the clear impression that he thought the theory was ridiculous. While that was the first time we'd heard this theory, it wouldn't be the last. The next month, Michael and I spent a tremendous amount of time in Walker County investigating and interviewing people. We scheduled a second meeting with the sheriff at the end of September. I received a call from the sheriff's office on my drive there to let me know that something had come up and the sheriff would not be able to meet with us, but he arranged for us to meet with cold case investigator Mike Cole instead. I arrived early, and instead of waiting for Michael outside, I went inside the reception area to let the office staff know that I was there for a meeting with Cole. Within a minute of my arrival and before Michael arrived, Investigator Cole came to the reception area to retrieve me for our meeting. Our meeting took a nosedive within seconds. After brief pleasantries, the first statement out of his mouth was this. You may find when you get into this that the problem has been the DA's office. One of the next statements from him was... This is not a murder investigation. It's a death investigation. We may find it is not a murder. Did you know that the coroner has the manner and cause of death as undetermined? If it's a murder, why is it listed that way? I replied that I believed that meant further investigation and information was needed. Michael arrived shortly afterwards and Cole showed us some of the binders that contained the Kate's case file. He showed us all of the CDs for their audio interviews, the transcript of the 911 call, and the photos taken at the crime scene the day Eric and Gypsy were found. Now, there are many other important things that occurred during this meeting, but it's not the time to really speak about them just yet. It is important to note that since we saw the unspeakable photos of the crime scene, we did see that the fire absolutely did not start on Eric's boots, or even in the floorboard of the truck, as the esteemed officials were trying to convince us happened. During the next few months, we attempted to provide some information we'd learned and we were mostly met with excuses such as Investigator Cole hadn't had time to start looking at Eric's case file yet. As time passed, we were becoming more and more frustrated with the excuses and broken promises to Eric's mom, Toby. Sheriff Smith had told me on numerous occasions that District Attorney Bill Adair insisted Eric accidentally killed himself and Gypsy with a cigarette. I began to wonder if that was the reason that Mike Cole could never seem to find the time to look at Eric's case file. Mike's brother is Frank Cole, the longtime investigator for District Attorney Adair. I expressed my concern to Sheriff Smith, and I asked if the ridiculous opinion of the DA's office that he was speaking of was going to prevent the sheriff's office from investigating Eric's case, and he assured me it would not. Despite those assurances, with every gentle nudge we gave, we were told that Adair was impeding any investigation into the case. Little did we know that the whole time we were going round and round and fretting over this bogus theory, the Alabama Fire Marshal's Office, the Walker County Sheriff's Office, and the District Attorney's Office would or should have all had a report that unequivocally put that ridiculous speculation to bed. Keep in mind that even though we had no idea about the results of this report at the time, we'd already seen enough evidence and had enough knowledge to know what we knew they all should have known too, and they had the same evidence plus the report. What would you conclude was going on here? By the end of the year, we were well into the podcast season, and we began to hear some pretty shocking information. It came from many different sources. The gist of the tips was the same, but with each one, it involved different people. Many listeners to the podcast in the Walker County area came forward to say that they were being told by employees of both the Walker County Sheriff's Office and the Walker County District Attorney's Office that the podcast had it all wrong. Eric Cates was not murdered. He'd set his cell phone fire with a cigarette, and many of these people told the listeners of the podcast that they'd seen the autopsy report let's really consider what was happening here. Toby had repeatedly tried to get the sheriff's office, the coroner's office, and the district attorney's office to let her see her son's autopsy and toxicology reports. Her son. For five years, she was denied that request. While that was happening, those tasked with investigating and prosecution of any potential arrest were reportedly expressing beliefs that Eric was not murdered. It was an accident. Under Alabama law, if there's no active criminal investigation, an autopsy is public record, yet Eric's mom was being blocked from viewing it. While she was being prevented from seeing the autopsy, Employees of the DA's office and the sheriff's office were putting inaccurate gossip back into the community. While Sheriff Smith, Mike Cole, and Chuck Tidwell all reported issues investigating the case and pointed the finger at District Attorney Adair, he was an obvious and convenient excuse for all of their actions and inactions. Chuck also pointed the finger at his superiors in the sheriff's office. It will be up to someone other than us to determine exactly who, why, and how all these things happened, but here's the way I see it. Eric's case was still in the investigative stage at that point, and that falls squarely on the Walker County Sheriff's Office and the Alabama Fire Marshal's Office. As for District Attorney Bill Adair, I watched him in court at Josh's hearing. It seemed to me that after he was presented with the thorough investigation done by the Alabama Attorney General's office and the Summerton Police Department, he was more than willing to do his job. While there was much frustration during this time, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was Mike Cole's interviews at the Crime Stoppers press conference, where they announced a reward for this case in which he either deceptively or incompetently gave false information to the press. He told numerous media outlets that surveillance footage in the area suggested Kate's car was the only one that drove towards the school overnight between March 20th and the 21st, 2015. He was referring to Wingo Road. He was quoted as saying, what we're hoping to generate is good, credible information to residents who live in that community to see if there was any foot traffic. Someone walking on foot between Friday night and that Saturday afternoon. We can tell you this information is absolutely false. Every piece of it is a lie. Shortly after those interviews made the news with most of the local news sources, Toby met with Mike Cole. She asked him yet again if he had looked at Eric's case file. He told her yet again that he hadn't. She asked him where he came up with the information that he gave to the media in the press conference. He told her that he asked Chuck Tidwell what to say, and he also found a sticky note on one of Chuck Tidwell's files that had uh, some of that information on it. And here's another piece of the story that we didn't share with you at the time.
1: I recall that in one of the meetings I had with Sheriff Smith and my co, one of the problems that I'd had in the past was that one of the main suspects whose name was given to us shortly after Eric and Gypsy's remains were found behind Empire School, was the name of Josh Hill. And from my understanding, what I had been told was that Josh had never been formally interviewed. And so I... I, again, I had given the name to Mike Cole early on, not long after he had been appointed Cole case investigator. And he was one of the uh, first names that I gave him as far as being the suspect in Eric and Gypsy's case. And I asked him to please interview him. Well, as weeks, months went on, when I would had the opportunity to ask Mike Cole If he had had a chance to talk to him on this one occasion while in the office of the sheriff, Sheriff Nick Smith, Mike Cole and myself, I brought it up again. I asked Mike if he had a chance to talk to Josh Hill. And he said, as a matter of fact, I have. And I said, great. What did he say? He said his statement was the same as it was in the beginning. He knew nothing about it. And I said, that, that was it? And Mike said, yes, that was it. And I, I don't remember exactly at what point, but I said, that was all of his interview? And he said, I picked up the phone and called him. He said, I've known Josh Chill for years. He said, And I'm tired of my friends being blamed for everything bad that goes on in Empire. I was a little shocked. And I know I shouldn't have been after dealing with Michael. But I said, will you please do an interview with him, sitting down face to face? And he didn't answer. He just kind of looked away.
0: On January 29th, 2020, Sheriff Smith and Mike Cole finally allowed Toby to view Eric's autopsy. You've already heard so much about this, and we aren't going to rehash it all, but there are some pieces of it that are very significant to current events. When Toby viewed the autopsy, she immediately noticed the pages were numbered and there were many pages missing. She pointed this out to the Sheriff and Cole, If you recall, Cole became very agitated that Toby wouldn't accept his word that the autopsy she was looking at was complete. Despite the fact it was undeniable that pages were missing, he insisted that what she was seeing was the complete autopsy. Mike Cole got so angry about it that he slammed his fist on a table and raised his voice to Toby on more than one occasion. In this same meeting... Cole insisted to Toby that Eric either committed suicide or accidentally set himself on fire with a cigarette. He was quite adamant and told her that she just needed to accept that's what happened. Isn't it called gaslighting when someone forcefully and continually tries to convince someone else of something that obviously isn't true? Toby asked him if he had had an opportunity to review Eric's case file yet, and shockingly, he told her he had not. This skilled, experienced investigator was telling a mom what happened to her son without ever looking at the investigative file, and without having all the pages to the autopsy report, and without even taking the time to view the fire marshal's report, which completely discredited the theories he was insisting Toby just needed to accept. As all of you know, in the end, Toby was right. Many pages were missing. The question is why the pages were missing and why all involved tried so hard to convince her otherwise. Are we really to believe that none of these highly skilled and trained professionals don't understand the concept of numbered pages? In light of the testimony and Josh's hearing regarding the autopsy, it leaves even more questions as to why they tried to present Toby with an autopsy that was missing so many pages. Earlier, we told you that Special Agent Joe Herman testified that when they presented the report from the fire expert to Dr. Green at ADFS, Dr. Green told them that she agreed with the report, and if she had been provided with photos of the crime scene, she would have reached the same conclusion. I found the statement to be quite surprising. Why weren't photos of the crime scene sent to ADFS? I would have thought that was standard practice in most cases. With the help of my friend Carrie from Alabama Cold Case Advocacy, we took an informal poll of 11 homicide investigators throughout the state. We didn't want to make it case-specific and put anybody on the spot, so the question was simple. If you're called to a scene with a deceased person that is going to be sent for an autopsy, do you provide photos to the medical examiner? We got variations of the same answer, all indicated that they almost always attend the autopsy themselves so that they are present to answer any questions and provide information, such as photos to the medical examiner in person. Every one of them indicated photos should and are provided in some form or fashion. A couple of them indicated that if the scene is complicated, they would request that ADFS come to the scene themselves. While hindsight is 20 If photos of the scene had been sent in Eric's case, it seems that cause and manner of death would have never been listed as undetermined. The best that can come from this is that maybe a lesson can be learned and that photos should always be provided to the medical examiner in future cases. So why is it necessary to rehash all these things now that arrests have been made? And Eric and Gypsy's case is finally being properly handled.
1: As I said in the beginning, when Michael and Amber came on board to help us, this is not just for Eric and Gypsy. After this happened in 2015, there are so many more people out there that have been affected by this group this Hill family, whatever you want to call them, and their entourage that have put people in fear and so many other people that have been missing, murdered, that I hope this gives them comfort and opens up doors that will give them answers that they need for their loved ones.
0: Well, we've been telling you, This was a cover-up and corruption for years now, and I believe we were all just handed some clear evidence of that. Government corruption and cover-ups should concern every single one of you, because if this can happen to the Cates family, it can happen to you. In fact... We believe it's been happening to many others for a long time, and that's why all of this matters so greatly. Because this isn't the only case that has been handled in this manner in Walker County. For that matter, you can include some neighboring counties in that whose turn is going to come up soon, too. While it's true that Eric and Gypsy and their family are what brought us to Walker County over four years ago, this very quickly became about many other victims, too. Unfortunately, the list is so long, we can't possibly name everyone today, but I do want to mention a few. Hayden Mayberry. He disappeared in November 2019, and his remains were found just a short distance away a few months later. His death was ridiculously ruled a suicide, even though everyone knows he did not kill himself. Tommy Welch. If you listen to the podcast miniseries on Hayden, you'll remember Tommy as he was the one that was rumored to be one of the last known people to be with Hayden. Tommy was found hanging from a tree earlier this year. At first, the Walker County Sheriff's Office and coroner immediately ruled his death a suicide, and they were not going to send his remains for an autopsy. They later reversed that decision and sent him for an autopsy, and things got even more bizarre. While Tommy had a number of unexplained injuries, there were no internal injuries to his neck. Yet the Walker County coroner ruled his cause of death as blunt force trauma and the manner as suicide. His death certificate notes that his injury occurred from hanging. I am also pretty certain that photos of the scene were not provided to ADFS in this case, and based on the photos we've seen of Tommy's injuries and his body, we do not believe that Tommy hung himself. Randy Hicks, investigators Tim Thomas and Chuck Tidwell, both investigators involved in the Kate's case, determined that Randy died in a tragic accident when he was running through the woods and fell off a non-existent cliff. It's pretty strange that this accident occurred just days after he was released from the Walker County Jail, where multiple witnesses have stated Randy was begging to meet with Chuck Tidwell and the sheriff, Jim Underwood, so he could turn state's evidence and tell them who murdered Eric and Gypsy. Marcus Jordan. 21-year-old Marcus was shot in the head, and it too was quickly ruled a suicide. His dad described Marcus's friend as toting stuff out of the crime scene right under the noses of the sheriff's office investigators. Marcus lived with a man in a cabin-style home, and his father told me that none of the rooms in the small cabin had doors. According to the sheriff's office investigation, Marcus shot himself, but somehow his roommate never even heard the gunshot, despite being in the home with no doors, to potentially muffle the sound. Thanks to the testimony and Josh's hearing, We know that these same officials were all maintaining that Eric Cates accidentally set himself on fire by dropping a lit cigarette on his boot that he'd splashed a little gasoline on hours earlier when they all had a forensic testing report from the Alabama fire marshal's office that proved what they were saying couldn't have happened. I wonder what evidence and information is being ignored in the cases of Hayden, Tommy, Randy, Marcus, and many, many more. As I mentioned earlier, we sat in that courtroom at Josh's hearing and we witnessed District Attorney Adair working hard to bring justice to Eric's family. I hope that now he is aware of certain issues that are and have been occurring in the county, he'll dedicate himself and his staff to reviewing many of these other cases where the injustice is just as great. If you have any information that could help in solving the murders of Eric Cates and Gypsy or the mysterious death of Randy Hicks, Please call the Alabama Attorney General's office at 334-215-7867. You may also email me at secretscrime at protonmail.com or call our confidential tip line at 205-282-0740. If you are left still wanting even more content, please check us out on Patreon. We have filled it with great information about Susan and Evan, Eric and Gypsy, and Jessica and Jeremy. This podcast is an independent podcast. That means that everything that goes into making this podcast is done and funded by me. All of the investigative tools and resources are provided by Echo 7 Foxtrot. The tragedies we highlight and investigate have had a tremendous impact on the victims, loved ones, and friends. We don't burden them with the additional expenses to cover their cases. We donate our time and talents because we want to help and hope to find the answers they need that are so long overdue. For as little as $5 per month, you can receive exclusive access to members-only photos, videos, early access to episodes, and much, much more. By becoming a patron, you too are helping us help these families. Your support as a patron of Secrets True Crime Podcast helps us cover the expenses associated with producing a high-quality podcast, traveling to conduct fieldwork and interviews, and obtaining the tools and equipment needed to conduct a thorough investigation. In short, your support as a patron allows us to do more for these families. Become a patron of Secrets True Crime Podcast today, and let's solve these cases together. Patreon.com slash Secrets I'll also post the link on our Facebook page. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to follow or subscribe and your podcast player of choice by giving us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcast. I'm active on social media and often share photos of Eric and Gypsy, Susan and Evan, and Jessica and Jeremy. Follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. The audio production for this podcast is by Kane Power at precisionpodcasting.com.